0: Hi everyone, this is Graham Satan. I'd like to welcome you back to the Nutrition Farming Podcast. In episode two of season two, we're going to continue our discussion on strategies to help you build sustainable profitability on your farm. I'll be talking about five different strategies here and the focus will be all about making some money from the farming enterprise. Profitability is the bottom line in any business venture. It's so common to hear farmers discussing yield As a cornerstone of achievement and farming success, yield should never be the marker. It's about what it costs you to create that yield. And that term cost should probably also encompass soil health and productive potential for the next season and beyond. I mean, you can pump up a crop with fertilizers and then nurture it through with a bunch of expensive farm chemicals to create that yield, but the cost per tonne can be exorbitant. And your profit is often negligible. Then when you factor in the flogging of your soil, you're actually often going backwards. I've seen dairy farmers reduce their herd from 700 down to 400, improve their pasture health and pasture diversity, reduce stock feed inputs, and they often find they're actually making more money than what they were with a much larger herd. I've seen small producers who have combined a soil health focus with good marketing, with value-adding and well-reasoned crop choices, And I've seen them make more profit than much larger operators. So let's look at some things. Let's look at bringing back your earthworms. Let's look at understanding the interplay between minerals. It's not difficult. We just need to understand some core concepts. Let's talk about taking care of missing minerals like sulfur and why that's important. Uh, We'll talk again about brewing your own beneficials. And we'll talk, I think we've covered it previously, we're going to talk in a bit more detail, a bit more practically about addressing The money mineral potassium now as i said some of this information might have been covered in varying forms in previous episodes but here i'll try to infuse it with a more practical emphasis so so let's start with the earthworm story now many farmers recall the clouds of birds following the plough during their childhood on the farm the earthworms were plentiful in many soils before we drove them out And when you understand their critically important roles, perhaps you might be motivated to try to bring them back. So what are those roles? Well, the earthworm looks a little bit like a piece of intestine, and that's appropriate because it's an integral part of the soil food web. It's the most visible part of the soil food web, which is, in effect, the plant's stomach. So unlike us, the plant's got an external stomach. And it feeds that army of organisms surrounding its roots with glucose exudates. And those exudates are laced with other nutrients to attract specific microbes to often deliver the minerals and so forth and the nutrition that that particular plant requires. So the greater the diversity above ground, the greater the diversity below ground. Now, as I said, the earthworms is the most visible of this hidden workforce. And the presence of these creatures can really be seen as a barometer of soil health and productivity. I mean, if your earthworm counts are low, your soil fertility is compromised and your problems and pest pressure usually increase accordingly. So let's look at those roles. Well, humus has been determined to be the single most important component of productivity and profitability on the farm. Earthworms produce humus four times more rapidly than other forms of decomposition. So, organic matter is important, and here's a creature that can create stable organic matter called humus four times more quickly than any other natural decomposition. That's hugely important. When we look at the relationship between humus and global warming, we understand how important the earthworm is in that specific context. Number two, oxygen is arguably the most important, but certainly a hugely important element in crop production. Earthworm burrows oxygenate the soil more effectively than spiked rollers, and they offer a bunch of other benefits. The walls of those tiny tunnels are lined with microbe food by the earthworm as it returns home each night from its above-ground forays. When it next ventures to the surface to pick up some raw organic matter or to digest and turn into humus or to deposit some of its castings, it'll suck up those swarming microbes. Then, like a fisherman baiting crab pots, it recharges the tunnel with microbe food as it heads back down until the next harvest. So those castings are immensely valuable in their own right. They are absolutely jam-packed with a diverse array of beneficial microbes, and they're also a rich mineral fertilizer. In fact, the earthworm poo contains 10 times more potassium, 7 times more phosphorus, 5 times more nitrogen, and three times more magnesium than the surrounding soil. The plow also contains 150% more calcium. So the earthworm is, in effect, a little fertilizer factory, a microbe factory, and it doesn't stop there. The earthworm comes equipped with a calciferous gland that allows the infusion of calcium carbonate into everything that passes through it. So it's a fertilizer factory, a microbe incubator, and a lime works all in one see when I say microbe incubator this is important to understand this amazing creature incubates a range of specialist organisms in its guts that basically don't come from anywhere else if, if you don't have earthworms you're missing those productive microbes in your soil the popularity of worm juice fertilizers is all about you know, the gains you get when you introduce those missing microbes if you don't have earthworms in your soil The holy grail of nutrition farming is to achieve a minimum of 25 earthworms per shovelful. If you can produce this count on average throughout the year, then your earthworms will be producing 300 tonnes of living fertiliser per hectare per year. Now, if you go out and source earthworm compost, it's a minimum of $100 per tonne in bulk. So you just achieved $30,000 of free fertiliser per year per hectare. So, you know, bring them back. It's a pretty good strategy. Let's look at some of the practical techniques that might help you bring back your earthworms. Number one, multi-species cover crops feed a diverse range of organisms. As I said, the greater the diversity above, the greater the diversity below. And many of the organisms, when you've got this diversity, many of those organisms serve as a food source for earthworms. Compost introduces a similar diversity of food sources for earthworms and you'll always have an increase in earthworms associated with compost applications liquid fish is the best single input for earthworms particularly at higher rates when i think about optimizing earthworm counts it's really hard not to think about my visit to andrew mann's farm in canada now he's applying an array of nutrition farming principles on the family's 100 acre organic farm He's got this one acre greenhouse that's actually the most productive example of intensive horticulture that I've ever seen. And I've looked at a lot of this stuff around the world. He's got, you know, task specific cover crops in the actual rows under the cash crops. And basically, Andrew feeds 600 litres of liquid fish to the tomatoes, cucumbers and capsicums during their quite long crop cycle. That's a lot of liquid fish, but you've got to see the earthworm castings that inches deep in the rows and the earthworm counts are way higher than 50 per shovelful you know this little tool i've talked about before called the microbiometer that is a direct measure really the higher the reading the higher your productivity well andrew's score on the microbiometer was the highest that i've ever measured anywhere in the world i mean it's got a turnover of several hundred dollars per square meter and that's actually the most productive soil i've ever seen so andrew's doing a wonderful job there now a couple of other ideas. Protecting earthworms is a pretty good strategy. I mean, just try pouring some liquid urea on an earthworm and watch it squirm. I mean, it really, really does struggle in those scenarios. I mean, earthworms struggle with both salt fertilizers and with acidic fertilizers like DAP and MAP. And the secret is to avoid large doses of both and to buffer those fertilizers. You can buffer them with carbon-based things like humates, You can buffer them in liquid form with things like molasses, or you can put the fertilizers into a compost base. Minimum till also helps minimize damage. helps minimize damage specifically to the fungal component, and they're a really popular earthworm food. However, the favorite earthworm food is called protozoa. And it's really not difficult to make a protozoa tea to attract earthworms back to your soil. Now, I think I've touched upon this earlier, but here's a bit of a refresher about how this is best achieved. In fact, here's a recipe for a 1,000-litre shuttle of Protozoa tea. Now, you need to have the plumbing and a pump for a 1,000-litre shuttle. You can buy this kit from my company, NTS, or you can make it yourself. It's not difficult. The best input, the best inoculum for all three species of Protozoa is loosen hay, or, or as... The American friends amongst us will call it alfalfa. We call it and here in the UK and so forth. But alfalfa or lucerne tea, the best inoculum for all three forms of protozoa. They just love that high protein in that particular hay. Now, if you can source organic lucerne or alfalfa, it's always going to be preferable because we've found that the insecticides that they use to manage lucerne flea are actually highly toxic to protozoa. So... Here's what you do. You break up one full bale of lucerne or alfalfa and add it to 900 litres of water in the 1,000-litre shuttle. Add 10 litres of liquid fish and add 10 litres of molasses to that mix and then aerate it for two full days. That's not one day, that's not 24 hours, it's two days. You can check on your progress if you're lucky enough to have a basic microscope because they're very easily seen. They're much bigger, Protozoa much larger, than bacteria and fungi. So you can check them out on your microscopes and watch their multiplication. Now the end brew, two days later, apply it at about 50 liters per hectare. So a single drum will cover about 20 hectares, 50 acres. Also, always remember my lunchbox tip. So you send out the new workers with a lunchbox with some food. And in this case, you're gonna send them out with a bit more liquid fish and molasses, so they can essentially hit the ground running you should see your earthworm numbers start increasing a couple of weeks later and you will be pleased. So for the second of our strategies in this segment, let's talk about developing a better understanding of the interplay between minerals. Understand that no mineral is an island. Every mineral affects one, two, three, four, in the case of calcium, seven other minerals directly, whether there's too much or too little, seven other minerals will be impacted. So understanding the balance, and balance is the most important single concept in nutrition farming, whether we're talking about the balance between calcium and magnesium, or the balance between pest and predator, or bacteria and fungi, it's that equilibrium that can so seriously impact profitability, and understanding how to move in the right direction can make a considerable difference. So we'll begin with the most important ratio from a mineral perspective. And that ratio is called the calcium to magnesium ratio. Now, why is it so important? Well, I mentioned earlier about the single most important element in agriculture is of course, oxygen. in fact, when you're farming, you're managing two things. You're managing gas exchange, and I'll explain that in a moment. You're managing gas exchange and you're managing chlorophyll density, or well, you're managing chlorophyll full stop, the green pigment that houses the little sugar factories called chloroplast that really has such an impact on your productive potential. So you're managing gas exchange and you're managing chlorophyll. Now let's talk about the CalMAG ratio relative to gas exchange so what we want is to oxygen freely diffuse which means diffusion is moving from a high concentration to a low concentration so there's a high concentration of oxygen in the atmosphere and it diffuses into the soil where the roots use it for everything the organisms surrounding those roots use oxygen and then they breathe out and what they breathe out of course is co2 so the roots and the organisms around the roots breathe out CO2. Now there's a high concentration of CO2 in the soil, so it diffuses from the soil. The plant leaf covered in tiny little mouths called stomate sucks up that CO2, combines it with water and sunlight, and that's photosynthesis, the production of glucose, the building block of everything, of all carbon chemistry. So hugely important. And gas exchange is how freely does the oxygen move in and the CO2 move out? And the ratio that determines whether or not your soil can breathe effectively is called the calcium to magnesium ratio. And here's how and why it works. All minerals have a different, what's called ionic radius. They're a different size. They're a different ball. Think of it like that. And calcium is like a beach ball. It's a very large ionic radius. It has two positive charges it's called a divalent cation because it's got two charges and so think of the ball with a charge on either side and that ball grabs hold of negatively charged clay particles in the soil so it grabs a particle of clay on one side and with the positive charge on the other side of the big beach ball it grabs another clay particle and it pushes apart the clay that's called flocculation and of course that allows the easy entry of oxygen and the easy excess of co2 for all-important gas exchange. So that's calcium's role, to grab hold of that clay and push it apart. Now, magnesium is like a golf ball compared to that beach ball. Also with two positive charge, grabs hold of clay either side and pulls the clay together. So you've got tight, closed soils. You've got platform shoes in the wet. You've got soils that don't breathe where gas exchange is not working. And you might say, well, forget the magnesium then. I'm just going to do the calcium. I'm going to open her up and get my soil breathing. But you can't forget the magnesium because there's a second chief role that I mentioned called chlorophyll management. And magnesium is the key mineral in that green pigment. Just like iron in our blood, magnesium is the key mineral in the blood of the plant called chlorophyll. You'll see that it's a central magnesium ion with four nitrogen ions tagged on as the chemistry of chloroplasts. And so hugely important, you can have all the nitrogen in the world, but if you haven't got magnesium there for it to tag to, you've got a problem. So we can't forget magnesium. But what we can do is look at the ideal ratio between calcium and magnesium to maximize breathability and to ensure there's enough magnesium there for that whole process of driving photosynthesis. So how do we do that? Is there an ideal calcium to magnesium ratio And every soil, no, there's not. There is an ideal ratio specific to your soil, but there is no one size fits all. It's all about the percentage of clay that you have in your soil is how much magnesium you'll need relative or how much calcium you'll need relative to magnesium. So in a high heavy clay soil, that ratio might be as high as seven parts calcium to one part magnesium, a seven to one ratio in heavy clay soils because you need more calcium to open up that clay but in a light sandy soil where there's not much clay at all it can be a very different story here the ratio might drop down as low as three parts calcium to one part magnesium because we actually need more magnesium in that ratio more magnesium to try and create a structure in that sandy soil that has no structure so it's a different purpose so you might be in a cc of three or four or five you might be a three to one ratio And there is an ideal relative to your soil. And a good soil test will tell you that your ideal ratio is perhaps 4.5 to 1 or 5.7 to 1. And then you work towards trying to maximize or optimize the ratio relevant to your soil. Now, a good soil test will tell you that. All of our soil therapy, we call it soil therapy. Those tests will tell you this is the ratio for your soil. And you work towards improving that ratio. Now, sometimes you'll never perfect it you might have a very, very high magnesium soil and your ratio is two to one or even one to one, very tight closed soil is not performing particularly well, particularly from a biological perspective because the biology can't breathe in that one to one cal ratio soil. But every step you make in the right direction will be an improvement. So if you can get some lime and gypsum, often a combination of both, and you can open up that soil, you will see the changes. You'll see the change in soil structure and you'll see the associated benefits. So what kind of things are we gonna use to correct? We need to understand the percentage of calcium for a starting point in each of the key products. So limestone or lime is called calcium carbonate and it contains 400 kilos per tonne of lime. So that's the highest source of calcium. Gypsum contains half of that. It only contains 200 kilos. Dolomite, which is a combination of calcium and magnesium, also just 200 kilos of calcium. So we have to tailor our inputs depending upon the requirements of the soil. If we needed some magnesium and some calcium, and that applies to many soils, then dolomite has a role because you're delivering both minerals at the same time. But you never, ever use dolomite in a high magnesium soil because you'll worsen the problem. You'll tighten that soil. It becomes almost poisonous in those scenarios. Dolomite is only applicable if you need magnesium and you need perhaps both calcium and magnesium then you can figure how much dolomite is appropriate for that so in our gypsum and a heavy soil of course it's calcium sulfate it's got less it's only got half the calcium but it performs a good role in opening tight soils because when it gets into the soil it ionizes apart you know you've got calcium and sulfur together and they break apart and the sulfur grabs hold of magnesium and forms magnesium sulfate or it grabs hold of sodium and forms sodium sulfate and of course those are the two most leachable forms of those two key soil tightening minerals so you get rid of the tightening effect of magnesium and sodium through leaching them out when you add gypsum now you don't want to add too much gypsum is really important never really more than a ton of acre, two and a half tons per hectare the absolute max because you won't just remove excess magnesium and sodium through the formation of sodium sulfate and magnesium sulfate, the very leachable forms. You can also leach out other cations that perhaps you don't want to leach out through formations of soluble manganese sulfate or whatever. So you don't want to ever overdo gypsum. It can actually be quite destructive. And two and a half tons per hectare is the maximum in a single dose. But it can do a great job in helping that soil breathe. And often it's a good idea to combine 50-50 gypsum and calcium together, understanding that you've got displacement effect with the high levels of calcium in limestone. Calcium on a one-to-one level, percentage-wise on base saturation, calcium can displace magnesium from the clay colloid. So you're bringing in calcium and it pushes magnesium off the clay colloid. If you're using a combination of limestone and gypsum you can have this pushing off effect combined with grabbing hold of magnesium and leaching it out so it's a double effect it's a double impact but you need to know how much calcium is required in that soil and work out the appropriate amount of both gypsum and lime together to correct that problem so that's the calcium to magnesium ratio the second ratio we'll consider is called and this is something we came across with our research with myself and the agronomy team and I'm quite proud of that discovery. This refers to the magnesium to potassium ratio. Now, unlike the calcium to magnesium ratio which is you figure that out looking at base saturation figures and you divide one into the other, this is about parts per million on your soil test. The magnesium to potassium ratio is based on parts per million and it's quite simple what you're seeking is to try and achieve equal parts per million of both magnesium and potassium. Now, in a light sandy soil, you don't worry about percentage of base saturation. If you've got a CC of three or four, there's just a standard basic formula. You want 500 parts per million of calcium, and you can figure out how much lime required to achieve that, but you need 500 parts per million in a light sandy soil, and you need 120 parts per million each of magnesium. And potassium, and there's your one to one ratio, and there's your correct ratio in that soil for CalMag and so forth. So that's just a rule of thumb in those light soils. Now, you know, in a heavier soil, we might be talking about hundreds of parts per million of each, and sometimes you might have like 1200 parts per million of magnesium in a very heavy clay soil and a serious potassium deficiency of two 300. Well, you're not going to fix that quick. In fact, you may never fix that. You can pull out some of the magnesium, as we mentioned with a combination of lime and gypsum. And you can, of course, add in some potassium into that deficient scenario, but you may well have to fully spray potassium to compensate for the fact that magnesium shuts down potassium. So here's the deal. What we discovered was if you can move and you can achieve that one-to-one ratio, equal parts per million of magnesium and potassium, what you see is the ideal levels of both of those minerals show up on leaf tests so you get the really good uptake of magnesium and the really good uptake of potassium now it's simple to understand because the key cations calcium magnesium potassium and sodium have a huge impact on each other too much of any of those too much magnesium shuts down calcium shuts down potassium and so forth too much potassium shuts down calcium and magnesium they directly interplay and so the aim here in recognition of that interplay is that you're going to try and achieve equal million And when you do, there's no shutdown effect, uh, and both minerals pour in. But the interesting thing is that a third mineral suddenly shows up in luxury levels in the leaf. And you think, how? Because that third mineral is called phosphorus. Now, phosphorus is massively important for the inherent disease protection within the plant, for crop quality, for color of fruit, for a whole range of things but whole production of sugar is based on phosphate enzymes so phosphorus is huge in the store and we're always trying to get luxury levels of phosphorus on a leaf test and what we saw is if we perfect magnesium and potassium like get close to that one to one ratio in pours the phosphorus and how on earth is that happening here's why Potassium is a phosphate antagonist, and when you get potassium right, you haven't got any potassium shutting down phosphorus uptake, and magnesium is a very powerful phosphorus synergist. So getting magnesium right means you've got plenty of magnesium in the equation to help push phosphorus into the plant, and without the shutdown, and with plenty of stimulatory emphasis coming from the magnesium, in comes the phosphorus, and that's a really good outcome because we talk, as you might have heard me talk about, something called the big four where we're trying to get really good levels of phosphorus, calcium, magnesium, and boron into the plant. And that ratio, the magnesium to potassium ratio can really help getting certainly magnesium and phosphorus into that leaf at high levels. So that's an important ratio. Now, the third ratio we're going to talk about is the phosphorus to sulfur ratio. Now here's, you know, we talked about cations directly impacting each other, and they all have Too much of one will shut down the other. Same story with the major anions. So too much sulfur, you've overdone gypsum, will shut down phosphorus uptake. It will shut down nitrate nitrogen uptake, which is of course another major anion. Too much phosphorus will shut down sulfur. Now they're important minerals. And so how do we get good uptake of both phosphorus and sulfur? We aim towards a one to one ratio in terms of parts per million on your soil test. So if you've got 50 parts per million of phosphorus, you're aiming for 50 parts per million of sulfur. Now, most people have five parts per million of sulfur. It's one of the largest deficiencies, and I'll talk about that next. It's really important to address that phosphorus to sulfur ratio. Now, the next ratio we're going to talk about, again, involves this all-important phosphorus mineral and making sure we're getting enough of it, luxury levels of it in the leaf. And we're talking about the ratio between phosphorus and zinc. We want to see 10 parts phosphorus to one part zinc. High phosphorus will shut down zinc uptake, high zinc will shut down phosphorus uptake, both important minerals. Zinc, hugely important for leaf size, for example, uh, which is the solar panel and we want to have zinc present. We don't want to be shutting it down with phosphorus. So we aim towards 10 parts phosphorus to one part zinc. The fifth ratio we're going to discuss here is the iron to manganese ratio. And in this case, it's quite simple, in terms of parts per million on your soil test, you always want to have more iron than manganese. If you've got more manganese than iron, it will shut down iron uptake and you're probably going to have to foley spray iron to compensate. But the goal is never more than two parts iron to one part manganese. So if you've got 200 parts per million of iron in your soil, you don't want to have 20 parts per million of manganese because that will be a manganese deficiency. So you can have a look at your soil test and have a pretty good guess as to whether it particularly with manganese, because it's more common to have high iron soils, then you might have to fully spray manganese during the season to compensate. Now, the final ratio is the potassium to sodium ratio. And this is the only time we go back, other than the CalMag ratio, we go back to the base saturation component. And we want to always see more potassium in terms of percentage base saturation than sodium. Because if you get more sodium in the equation than potassium, the plant will Make a mistake essentially and uptake sodium rather than potassium, and that's serious because potassium is a money mineral and you're going to suffer. Now, we won't talk too much more about that now, but that concludes that segment. Okay, so it's time for our monthly joke here at the home office on the farm, and we're surrounded by rather deafening noise of crickets. I'll apologize for that. So it's closing time at a country pub, and the noisy patrons are slowly dispersing. A police car sits in a concealed position, observing the scene. Now this copper has had great success nabbing drunkards at this time around the district. In fact, he's been responsible for a 12-month driving ban every single week for 19 weeks straight. If he can make it 20 weeks in a row, his mates at the station have promised to shout him a cart of stubbies. Now, it's a bit ironic, I suppose, but but Australia is a drinking culture after all. He smiles with satisfaction as he watches his next victim stumble out of the pub door. The drunken farmer just makes it down the steps before his brain and legs lose sync and he falls flat on his face. He tries to get up but staggers and falls several times more before finally crawling the last 10 metres to his ute. He then tries several keys in the door and falls into the driver's seat. There he sits for several minutes, trying to reclaim enough consciousness to drive home. Other patrons drive out of the car park as his indicator lights and wipers turn on and off on the horn honks as his head falls onto the steering wheel. He's the last car in the car park by the time his ute jumps its way onto the roadway. The excited policeman immediately activates his siren and pulls over the bucking ute. He has the drunkard breathing into the breathalyzer just minutes later, but shocked when he finds no sign of alcohol. Something's wrong with my bloody gear, he says, and turns to the farmer and says, I want you to accompany me to the station for some blood testing. The farmer looks him straight into the eye and says, don't waste your bloody time, mate. You see, tonight was my time to be the designated decoy. Now it's time for the human health segment in episode two, our monthly human health story. Understanding that, you know, in a genuinely holistic approach, it's much better if the farmer is healthy, if he's to have a healthy soil. I mean, you know, health and happiness, we all know they are one and the same thing. And we're here to be happy and we can't really be happy without being healthy. So in this segment, I try and improve your understanding of how you can live a longer, happier, healthier life. So we're going to talk about this very important thing called insulin resistance, which of course leads to type 2 diabetes. Now, type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance together have been called the coming plague. It's argued that one in three of us suffer from either insulin resistance or the precursor to type 2 diabetes. And that's a huge story. We're now finding that insulin resistance may well be linked to a whole variety of degenerative diseases. In fact, it's been argued quite convincingly that insulin resistance, high blood pressure, stroke, Alzheimer's, and the big one of all, heart disease, that they may actually all be on different levels of a single continuum. So it's all part of the same story. So really important that we understand this issue and perhaps do something about it if we suspect we are becoming or are insulin resistant. So let's talk about what? insulin is. It's produced by the pancreas in response to a rise in blood sugar through consumption of sugar or simple carbohydrates. So insulin, really, really important substance because it carries two main cell foods, glucose and fatty acids, into our cells. It also carries magnesium into the cells. And of course, there's supposed to be much more magnesium in the cells than calcium. And that's the calcium to magnesium ratio. You don't want calcium in there And magnesium determines how easily calcium can get in and, of course, create calcification if it's in the cells rather than outside the cells. So because of its importance, all of our cells are covered in insulin receptors to attract the hormone and its precious payload. So you've got all these little receptors saying, come to me, come to me. However, here's the rub. If insulin's oversupplied, it can become toxic to our cells. And so in response they start shutting down their insulin receptors and that's called insulin resistance and when the shutdown's complete that's called type 2 diabetes and what happens then is that you can't carry those important cell foods into your cells so your cells can starve and that can result in the amputations and blindness that's a common feature of this rather horrible disease so Here's a few things you can do and are really worth considering in terms of reclaiming insulin sensitivity and there's some good research behind each of the five things i'm about to share with you number one really important is the concept of improving your omega-6 to omega-3 ratio now the reality is that most of us have quite a distorted ratio between those essential fatty acids the healthy ratio is two parts omega-6 to one part omega-3 in australia 20 parts omega-6 to one part omega-3 in the us 26 parts omega-6 to one part omega-3 and why is that an issue well here's the story omega-6 fatty acids are the building block for inflammation and that's fine it just has to be counterbalanced so you cut yourself you get sore you get a little pussy or whatever that's the inflammatory stage of the inflammatory cascade and then you hope to have the healing phase the anti-inflammatory phase kick in and that's built by a whole bunch of little protein messages built from omega-3 fatty acids so omega-6 is inflammatory omega-3 counters that inflammation with an anti-inflammatory response and they need to be in balance what does it mean when you've got 10 times more omega-6 versus omega-3 you're going to have inflammation and inflammation is linked to every major disease of course it's integral component of type 2 diabetes this horrible disease so we need to do something about that. We need to improve our omega-6 to omega-3 ratio. Really, really important piece of information. How do you do that? First of all, you've got to dump uh, some of the high omega-6 sources That probably one of the worst foods on the planet is called margarine. Take that margarine, fling it on the rubbish, never let it grace the mouths of yourself or your children again. Junk oils, the sunflower, the safflower, the canola, the soy oil, they're all high omega-6 oils. There's other problems with them as well, but they're junk oils. So we toss them out, moved to some good fats. And we also try and abandon grain-fed beef because, of course, it's fed omega-6 dominated grains. And so the animal itself was inflammatory, we've had to step in and do something about that. And of course, that's not, not good for us because we're eating that contaminated meat. Grass-fed beef is a whole different story. Grass is contained high levels of omega-3 so grass-fed beef is vastly superior to grain-fed beef in that context so what kind of things do you embrace the omega-3 rich foods things like oily fish things like krill oil flaxseed oil really good for dressing bit of balsamic vinegar a bit of flaxseed oil 57 percent omega-3 and flaxseed oil chia seeds you can put it in a glass of juice it jellies up overnight it doubles the antioxidant reading and chia seed at the highest source omega-3 fatty acids grass-fed beef as i mentioned hemp seed oil is wonderful well-balanced oil with a very good percentage of omega-3 those are the kind of things that we need to embrace and embrace on quite a large scale dump the junk oils embrace the good oils start cooking even with butter perhaps but certainly things like coconut oil and red palm oil wonderful cooking oils okay so number two is to reduce your carbohydrates and boost your protein, and as I mentioned, those good fats. So we're starting to recognise that we got the food pyramid all wrong with that 60% base being carbohydrates. And so we embrace carbohydrates as the most important food component. And basically, we're now knowing that the no fat low-fat, 98% fat-free strategy backfired when we reduce consumption of healthy fats, we actually increase our craving for carbohydrates. And when you overconsume them as a result, that makes us fatter than fat ever did. So what do you do? Reduce your bread. I've got doctors who just tell their clients to go off bread for three months and see what happens. And the results can be quite astounding. This isn't gluten intolerance. This is the negatives associated with bread in general, with wheat in general, to be more specific. So reduce your bread, your white rice, your sugar, your soft drinks, and increase your intake of the good facts as i mentioned the red palm oil the raw cream the olive oil perhaps as a dressing or for just a small time when you're cooking as i said red palm oil remarkable filled with it's got so much vitamin e uh, present and such a high component of carotenoids which makes it red that you can't actually damage it. it's one of the only oils that you can cook with and not damage and it's got some wonderful benefits Number three is to boost your chromium intake. Now, this is a neglected trace mineral. At least half of us are deficient to some degree. And it's the most important single mineral for insulin management. So what kind of um, amounts of chromium should we be looking at? Well, 500 micrograms. If you suspect that you're insulin resistant, you can go as high as 1,000 micrograms quite safely if you're suffering from type 2 diabetes. But there's a lot of side effect benefits with chromium. It lowers cholesterol. It enhances weight loss. It improves protein utilization with improved muscle development and associated body composition. It's a really, really good story. Tiny little white pill, not difficult to take. Chromium's worth addressing. Number four, find 100 minutes a week for resistance exercise. You might have seen people out in the park power walking while they're brandishing their little barbells. It's about our time-starved world where multitasking and you're trying to do several things in a single 30 minute session. Basically they're aerobically exercising their hearts while also pumping lymphatic fluid to avoid lymphatic congestion. And they're basically practicing their resistance exercise with the weights. So resistance exercise is not necessarily about muscle building, it's about providing a bit of resistance for muscles. And what happens is that that releases considerable amounts of human growth hormone from your pituitary gland where it's stored and often becomes trapped. This natural hormone is the essence of a long vital life, and there are over 100 published papers studying this longevity link. So how much do you need? And of course, it's been shown to be a great tool to increase insulin sensitivity. So how much resistance training is required? Well, five 20-minute sessions, hence my 100-minute suggestion. Five 20-minute sessions a week has been shown to help reclaim sensitivity while also pouring out human growth hormone with all the benefits of that youth enhancing hormone. Number five is to practice calorie restriction. It's been found that if you could maintain just 2000 calories a day, it has a remarkable impact on your health. Not only does it help counter insulin resistance, type two diabetes and Alzheimer's, it's also a proven practice, another practice to increase human growth hormone from your pituitary prison. Uh, You can eat quite a lot of foods, but it can't be bread, cakes, white rice, soft drinks, or beer, unfortunately. And you can look at things like fasting, even the concept of having your last meal at 6.30 in the evening and having nothing. You can have a cup of coffee, even a little bit of cream in that coffee in the morning, but you don't eat a serious meal until 10.30. That gives you 16 hours without... The word breakfast means break fast. And when you can have that little break, from eating, there are some remarkable changes that happen, including an increase in insulin sensitivities. I hope there's a few little ideas there that you might want to embrace and understand that it can be linked to so many health issues if you can address these problems. That brings us to the third of these additional strategies to boost profitability. And as I mentioned, we're going to talk about missing minerals. Now, we could very easily talk about something like molybdenum, which is missing in 80% of the soil tests that we test or that we check from around the globe. And hugely important in its own right, in the sense that you can't really fix nitrogen effectively from the atmosphere without molybdenum, which is, of course, one of the key building blocks for the nitrogenase enzyme. So that's a big story. You don't have access to the free gift in the absence of molybdenum. Similarly, you can't convert nitrates to protein. And of course, the plant's immune system is protein-driven, so that's quite a thing in its own right. The nitrate reductase enzyme is molybdenum-based. So a couple of good reasons to address that missing trace mineral. But this time around, the mineral we're going to talk and focus upon is the mineral called sulfur. Again, we said 80% are deficient and molybdenum and well it's similar numbers in terms of ideal levels of sulfur it's a huge deficiency i can walk this country and many other countries if i was allowed to with covid and just see sulfur deficiency everywhere now on a soil test we'll see five seven ten fifteen parts per million of sulfur that's a sulfur deficiency and that's a really important thing now here's the story on sulfur very shortly why are we so deficient in it well we used to get it for free, you know, it came out of the chimney stacks as sulphur dioxide and it fell down on the rain. And that, of course, was acid rain. And at some point, we lost waterways and we lost entire forests in Europe, and we banned sulphur emissions. So, so we didn't get it for free anymore. And then there's the second thing, the only storehouse for sulphur, very leachable anion called sulphur, is humus, organic matter. And we've lost two thirds of our organic matter in the last 10 or 12 decades. So we've gone from 5% down to 1.5%. We don't have much storage capacity for a mineral that we don't get for free anymore. So consequently, we see sulfur deficiencies and we see them everywhere. And so what does it mean to us to be missing sulfur in our crop? Well, it's a really important story because protein is made from amino acids, And two of the most important amino acids called cysteine and methionine are based upon sulfur. So you really can't make good quality protein if you don't have enough sulfur in the equation. And once again, the immune system of the plant is protein driven. So you're going to have substandard immunity in the absence of sulfur. You're going to have other things like pasture, palatability and a whole. And of course, it's an important mineral for our health. It's part of our whole detoxification system is sulfur fueled. So really important that we get it back into our crops back into our pastures back into our fruit how do you do that what's the best way to address a sulfur deficiency well if you need calcium it's generally regarded that gypsum is the answer because the sulfur in gypsum is the sulfate form the plant available form of sulfur and so of course it's only applicable if we need calcium as well but it can deliver some readily available sulfur. And then, of course, we've got the sulfate-based fertilizers. We've got things like potassium, things that we use in reasonable amounts like ammonium sulfate and potassium sulfate and, of course, all of the sulfate-based trace minerals. So we can address plant-available sulfur in that form. But interestingly, it doesn't make sense or it didn't make sense to me, but I've seen a really, really good response on many occasions to elemental sulfur, sometimes even when comparing it with gypsum similar units of sulfur involved but one was in the completely plant available form in the form of gypsum the sulfate form and the other was these yellow granules called elemental sulfur which had to go through a whole biological process involving organisms like theobacillus and bacillus subtilis and so forth that basically convert the sulfur to the plant available form and most soils have got those organisms but some soils don't so there can be an issue but most times that will convert but you know much more of a slow release input but why is it that you can put it out there and sometimes paint the field green more efficiently than putting gypsum out you got the same amount of gypsum you get a better response with the elemental sulfur i'm a big fan of elemental sulfur but i could never understand why that was happening until i saw the research that that little breathing pore that we mentioned that stomate on the underside of the leaf is not just to absorb co2 for photosynthesis from the breathing of the organisms and the roots it can also suck up the gaseous form of sulfur and during the conversion of elemental sulfur to the sulfate form there is substantial release of gas and the stone say you beauty and absorb that gas and hence that greening response and so Elemental sulphur can be a really, really good input. It's quite inexpensive, I'm not sure, in different countries. But here it's about 65 cents a kilo. And you're using amounts like 30 to 50 kilos of elemental sulphur per hectare, depending on what part per million number that you're shooting for. But as I mentioned, the key with sulphur is to look at sulphur relative to phosphorus. We talked about the phosphorus to sulphur ratio, where we're seeking equal parts per million of both phosphorus and sulfur and we also talked about things like not overdoing gypsum and ending up with 800 parts per million of sulfur which will impact the other key anions so that's the sulfur story and that's something many of us could benefit from looking at there are other ways we can bring sulfur in it could be brought in in the foliar form when we're using things like particularly potassium sulfate to address potassium very rapidly and efficiently via the leaf We've also got a substantial sulfur portion, which will, you know, boost protein production and so forth if you need sulfur. So it's a double hit. It's great for crops like wheat to come in with potassium sulfate, eight kilos per hectare, it works really well after flowering. And it'll deliver a bit of sulfur to boost that protein production. Of course, it will also deliver all important potassium to size up that grain. So that's the story of sulfur and just one of the missing minerals that we can address and should be addressing in our soils to boost profitability but we'll also talk just we'll we'll skirt around the story and I've mentioned it before that I believe every farm should have a brewing tank and we'll talk for a little bit about some of the things to make brewing your own living fertilizers is essentially what you're doing how you can do that more efficiently and the starting point is hygiene if you've got a brewing tank a 200 liter drum a 20 liter bucket a thousand liter container uh, you can set these up quite effectively we sell the kits for them but you can make them yourselves As long as you're delivering lots and lots of tiny little bubbles to that surface area and that ensures that you can maintain what you're seeking is six parts per million of dissolved oxygen throughout the brewing process. And of course, that's usually 24 hours for many organisms and they subdivide in every 20 or 30 minutes. And so a billion becomes two billion, becomes four, becomes eight, becomes 16, 32, 64, and we're only an hour and a half in or two hours in at that point. And so a lot of oxygen from these aerobic organisms starts sucking that oxygen. And you've got to have a system that would deliver many, many tiny bubbles with the surface area to ensure that you can maintain that oxygen, or they simply suffocate. That's the simple secret of brewing. But the more important or as important feature is hygiene. Now, if you're going to brew up, micro- the hair's full of them, your hands are covered on them, your dam water is jam-packed with them, some of them not necessarily good, and some of those not necessarily good species can also be aerobic and they like the same kinds of foods and they can brew up and compete with the good guys that you're trying to multiply. So you really have to have an awareness of hygiene. So before you brew, you usually use some hydrogen peroxide or, or even a, a disinfectant and, and flush it out afterwards, but basically have a clean starting tank. And when you finish, you usually do the same thing. So it's a little bit of mucking around, but it's not a big deal. But then the dam water is the big issue. And what you do is put some chlorine, just at the rate suggested that you might put into a swimming pool, and you bubble with your pump or your aerator will bubble. And you bubble before you put any microbes in there until there's no smell of chlorine. And that's usually half an hour to an hour. It might even take a little longer. But that kills everything. So you can start with a clean deck, basically, and you can add in the food, add in your microorganisms and brew. You're much more likely to brew what you're seeking to brew rather than something unintended. So that's a really important brewing feature that you really do need to address. Now, there are a few little tips. We're not going to go into this in depth. I might talk about these things in a further case. I mean, you can brew task-specific organisms. You can brew single species. You can brew things like nitrogen-fixing organisms will brew quite well. Bacteria like Azotobacter and so forth will brew up quite effectively. And that can be wonderful to boost your nitrogen uptake very cost effectively by brewing up nitrogen fixing organisms and that's doable it works really good if you apply those hygiene principles then you can take multi-species we have something called microforce which is a whole string of different bacillus organisms many of which can deliver minerals protect from disease a whole range of of benefits bacillus is a super versatile super hardy range and they're in a freeze-dried form and you can brew them up. That's called a multi-species blend. And then you can go for you know, the whole package where you're really seeking kind of biodiversity. And so we're talking about something called a compost tea. Now, there's quite a debate in the world of microbrewing about the value of a compost tea versus a compost extract. And the difference is that you're gonna take one kilo per 100 liters of a good compost, and the word good, of course, is quite subjective, but a well-produced compost, at 1% is what you use for the inoculum, and usually 1% of whatever food source you're going to choose, and then you begin the brewing process. So it's an aerobic process taking 24 hours, lots of oxygen, but the findings with that is you might start off with 30,000 different creatures in that good compost, but those that love aerobic conditions will tend to dominate and thrive, and that's good because there's many good guys that are highly aerobic, but it limits that biodiversity that you're trying to bring into the equation and sometimes you can brew up a bunch of oxygen loving organisms and then put them into a soil that's literally oxygen compromised and that's really common you know you've got closed tight soils and so forth where you've got plastic on the ground and and the soil's not breathing as well as it could and so forth so you've selected for a group of oxygen lovers and they might not even survive very well when you put them out in a soil that doesn't have that oxygen so that's one of the issues now luckily one species called Bacillus subtilis, which will be there if you're using a cow manure-based compost. That's a wonderful species, even if you've got that and nothing else in terms of its many benefits. And that can be you know, one of the outcomes of because it likes high levels of oxygen. And then it can survive on lower levels of oxygen because it's very versatile and very hardy. It can handle high salt conditions. It can handle very dry conditions. It can handle heat even at the early stages of composting. So it becomes a good outcome. Now, the story with the compost extract is you're taking much more compost, so it's not as cost effective, and you're basically rinsing through like a washing machine with a bit of pressure, water pressure, and so forth, and you're pulling the whole biodiversity, the whole component. You're not brewing them, you're not breeding them up, you're just extracting them from the compost in a liquid form. And then now you've got perhaps the 30 or 35,000 creatures, and you're going to bring in that massive diversity, remembering. Diversity works both ways. Above ground gives more diversity below ground. Below ground diversity improves things above ground. So we really want to bring in that diversity. And I think you could have both, quite simply. On my farms, I've not yet started extracting. We, Of course, we do do compost teas and we do lots of specialists. Mainly we'll do specialist organisms, including nitrogen fixes and phosphate solubilizers and potassium solubilizing organisms and so forth that can be brewed up. And we'll do compost teas, but we haven't done the extracts. But I think it's a missing link in what I need to be doing in terms of building back that biodiversity. So that's as much as we're going to talk about relative to uh, extracts. Now, other than saying it's not hard to set up. And once you set up, it's so easy. You just add the additives you basically brew it up and you can either foliar spray it if you're trying to control disease or you can put it out through fertigation. It's, it's really cost effective and really, really beneficial And everyone should have a brewing tank and learn something about brewing their own living workforce. So in our final segment, we're going to talk about managing the money mineral more effectively. And I'm speaking here, of course, about potassium. So potassium, second most abundant mineral behind nitrogen in the plant and the most mobile of all minerals within the plant. So it rushes around to where it's needed. Now the problem here is monitoring potassium and we need to monitor it because it governs the size of our produce. It governs fruit size, it governs seed size. It's massively important in terms of profitability. So why not just test the leaf like we do for every other mineral because here's the rub with that one. Basically potassium moves to where it's needed. It's needed for the growing tips, it's needed for the fruit as it grows obviously. And if a potassium deficiency initiates within the plant, it will move from the lower leaves to the top leaves. And where do we take the sample from? For our leaf analysis, we take it from the first fully developed leaf on the top leaves. We're taking it from where it's moved to effectively. And by the time we finally pick up that we've got a deficiency, which means the entire plant's drained and now the top leaves are finally without potassium, we've been potassium deficient for several weeks. And there's a price to pay for that deficiency that we can never recover. We'll never recover the yield lost through that potassium deficiency that went unnoticed because of the inefficiency of conventional leaf analysis. So is there a way around that? Is there a better way that we can monitor the money mineral? Well, there is. And I've talked about it before and I'll talk about it again because it's so important. You need to invest in a potassium meter. It's it's a few hundred dollars. And basically you're going to test, and you can do this within two or three minutes, but you're going to test the lower leaves and you're going to test the normal testing site, the first fully developed leaves. So the top leaves, the bottom leaves, and they need to be the same. The moment that there's a 10% deficiency in the lower leaves, you know that you've got a potassium deficiency underway and you need to address it immediately. Now, some of my colleagues around the world like to see, and some intense crops like strawberries, for example, they like to see Substantially more potassium in the lower leaves, and they see that as having a reserve for some serious sucking down of potassium as the strawberries grow and as you're producing new strawberries in a plant that keeps on fruiting for quite some months. So that's an interesting finding. Now, let's talk about some of the things that show up with potassium. So we understand now that leaf tests are not the best, that it's best to monitor from the top and from the bottom. One of the things, if you do buy a potassium meter, that you'll note is the massive drawdown, the often unrecognized drawdown of potassium from the moment of flowering, from as soon as fruit initiation or seed initiation begins, there is this really dramatic, like you would never guess it, you might be tagging along at 2,500 parts per million, which is pretty good levels, and then it'll drop almost overnight, but within a couple of days, as soon as that pressure comes and so much potassium is required at that point, you'll see 2,500 drop for example, down to 900 or something. And if you weren't monitoring, you wouldn't know that. So just understand that there's always that drawdown. Now, there are other things with potassium. For example, it's absorbed or utilised via soil solution. So if there is no soil solution, if you've got drought conditions, the very first mineral, because it's so abundant within the plant, the first mineral where you'll see the deficiency symptoms, you'll see the burnt outer edges and so forth potassium will be the first mineral that you will be missing in dry conditions and sometimes even when you see the orchard crop looking a bit droopy and you think well that's the lack of water potassium governs stem strength and it can be as much as often it can be the potassium deficiency through a lack of access to potassium because there's no soil solution and so that's when foliage spray potassium doesn't become beneficial it becomes absolutely essential And interestingly, you can use something as basic as potassium sulfate in orchard scenarios. I use it in my orchard with some fulvic acid always. I use it many times if there's a requirement or if we're keeping potassium up there for a rather large apple crop at the moment. And potassium sulfate is going to deliver that little bit of extra sulfur. And we've seen in these sandy soils a need for that extra sulfur. So we're doing it very efficiently, 15 times more efficiently through the leaf, through the use of potassium sulfate with fulvic acid as a foliar spray. So that's something important. It's expensive mineral. And interestingly, if you're monitoring and keeping an eye on it, you actually can get away. It's not that efficient to put out 250, 300 kilos of potassium sulfate as a basal fertilizer on the soil, particularly in high rainfall areas with light soils because it leaches very readily. It leaches almost as readily as things like sulfur and and nitrogen. And you're going to lose. It's not efficient. You know, It's far, far more efficient. To fertigate potassium as required, you know things like 25 kilos a week or every couple of weeks or a month, depending on how intense the crop is, and foliar spray potassium and just basically spoon feed it in that manner. I mean, we've grown this 18,000 apple trees, this very large apple crop, with no basal fertilizer potassium at all. It's all just been touch-up work as required via fertigation or foliar, and that's been very, very cost-effective and very, very efficient potassium nutrition and they're showing up with some very very tasty apples because flavor is potassium you get south f- citrus fruit that's very commonly a lack of potassium because you didn't realize how much you needed in that business end of the season so that pretty much wraps up this issue or this episode episode two of this second season of the nutrition farming podcast i hope you've enjoyed it i try and provide as much good stuff that you can get your teeth into and take out there and utilize as much as I can possibly fit into each of these sessions. If you enjoyed it, please share as much as you choose. And even you might even write a nice little report for us about your feelings if you've enjoyed the podcast. But until next time, I'm looking forward to the next time I even include an interview uh, in the next episode, episode three of season two. So thanks for listening and stay happy and healthy.